This is a Suno India production and you are listening to Gasping for Breath. Health rights is not a well explored subject. It was only after the HIV epidemic struck in the late 80s and 90s when patient groups started speaking about human rights in conjunction with health the hiv movement helped bring patient rights in the center of the treatment program in case of the age old tb the idea of patient rights is just about catching up hi i'm menaka rao the host of this podcast gasping for breath brought to you by suno india a podcast platform for issues that matter In this episode I interview Alan Malaysia the executive director of Kenya Legal and Ethical Issues Network on HIV and AIDS or Kellen Kellen was awarded the 2019 Kochoa prize by Stop TV partnership and Kochoa foundation during the 50th Union World Conference on Lung Health in Hyderabad The prize is given to organizations or individuals that make a significant contribution to combating TB Malaysia is a human rights lawyer and has fought cases involving human rights violations of HIV positive people and those suffering from TB. Hi Alan, could you first talk about the issue of human rights in the prevention treatment and control of infectious disease such as TB? Please tell me about human rights violation you fought in Kenya. So I think uh Law and human rights and high intersections and infectious disease like TB. I think I'll start from the point where the right to health is seen as a human right, and for us to define the right to health, we've had a number of legal and policy documents that define what the right to health is. And the leading documents around this include international instruments. that countries have ratified to say that all their citizens should be entitled to the highest attainable standard of health and this is where we derive the conversation around why law human rights and health is important and there's a great global interest to try and reduce that burden of either hiv tb or malaria uh, depending on the nature of the infectious diseases and so that burden leads to a lot of policy makers a lot of law makers trying to put into place regulations policies laws that would help guide how interventions can get to people now the most important thing around infectious diseases is that people want to know how they spread how do we stop the spreading those who have it how do we get them to have treatment and how do we test to get those who have it and so that's where the law and human rights intersection comes in because the moment they want to test someone the moment they want to collect someone's information then they are then bordering on the issue of the right to autonomy they are bordering on the issue of the right to privacy and that's how the conversation began with HIV that to test someone you needed to draw their blood and for that a person required to give their consent and previous history had shown us there were practices where people were being tested without their consent and it led to untold consequences to them and so the intersection of the law has then come in from that perspective but a lot for tb it has come in from the perspective of the fact that tb is airborne 
And so the likelihood of infecting another person is high. So if someone is infectious, the law then knows or wants to know what is it that can be done to ensure that this is not spread to other people. And so that's where we then have laws that are not specific to TB, but mostly public health acts that talk about what do you do when a person has an infectious disease. And this is what led to the case that Kelly dealt with about 10 years ago. Uh, regarding three gentlemen who had interrupted their TB treatment and uh, the public health officer using the strength of the Public Health Act sought to have them arrested and have them to be confined in prison so that there would not be a risk to the rest of the public. And so that is how we began our engagement on TB and human rights to basically say, yes, they may be infectious, but have you proved that to the court? Why are you holding them with other people in prison if you're saying your goal is to protect the public? So your control measures are not resonating with what human rights is able to expect. And so that's how the conversation on law, human rights, and TB started for us. But generally, the law normally regulates the aspects around how do you test, how do you treat, how do you ensure others are not infected for the case of infectious diseases that are airborne, and then how do you ensure that people are supported in the course of taking their treatment? TB is an airborne infectious disease. How does one balance the rights, the right of the person's privacy and the right to autonomy with the right of the community not to be infected? What would be the framework to understand that? So I think we have had a long debate around where do you balance the rights in situations where one is infectious and could be posing a threat. And I think we have had a number of documents finally developed to try and address these issues. And WHO has developed certain principles along an ethical guidance framework that helps you think through what are the least intrusive measures to have a person confined for the time that they're infectious without violating many of his other rights. And so it's not an easy balance, but normally the balance requires that one adopts the least restrictive methods in limiting the person's rights. So if you're gonna hold them uh, because they have an infectious disease, you need to have created a place where you can hold them, a place that is considered to be humane, but you also have to look at how the other rights not being violated, their right to family, their right to food, their right to information. And isolation has been taken as a measure of last resort and not the first measure of resort, because in many cases, many public health officers are resorting to it as the issue of first resort. So the balance is very delicate, but the laws and policies recommend that that be the issue of last resort. There could be other preventive measures you could take, like getting the person to wear a mask, having better ventilation in a place, uh, putting the person on treatment early enough so that they can stop being infectious. And then only when, when some of these non-intrusive methods don't work, that's when the law would then allow for a person then to be held in isolation depending on what's available. And in the case of Kenya, we've actually gone a step further where we've developed an isolation policy, which then spells around the steps that one must take 
from a public health perspective before they eventually isolate a person, but that policy has also gone further ahead to specify what should an isolation room look like and what should it contain. For countries that do not have an anti-discrimination law for TB, what kind of legal framework can be used to help TB patients? So I think the legal frameworks would start off by the constitution and South Africa and Kenya give a good example of how the constitution has been used in situations where we don't have specific TB laws to safeguard the rights of those who are affected by to safeguard the rights of those who are affected by TB. So I think that would be the starting point being the constitution of a country to see does it have provisions on the right to health? Does it have provisions on the right to non-discrimination? Does it have provisions on the right to dignity? And how are people able to rely on those particular uh, provisions of the constitution? And where there's a health act, again, you try to look at, does it have a patient's charter? Does it have rights that are spelled out for people who access services from hospitals? And how does that work out? So a health act, a patient's charter, again, become important documents. And also, if the country has ratified the international treaties, especially those dealing with economic, social, and cultural rights, then that also provides a framework that one will then be able to use. And occasionally, you can also rely on some of the government policies and regulations that touch on issues of TB, whereas also in certain countries like Peru, they may have TB-specific laws where then you can also be able to rely on those particular laws. To elaborate, Peru adopted one of the most progressive rights-based legislations on TB, which provides rights to access free TB treatment to file complaints against discrimination, both in public and private sector. More importantly, the right to inform consent before a person undergoes treatment. Alan, I also wanted to ask you about the kind of discrimination women who are suffering from TB face. In India, women are discriminated against and are often thrown out of their marital homes or left out of inheritance. How do you think we can involve the law in cases like that? So I think the stigma that people who have TB face, especially women, is enormous. Uh, the fact that one, people consider that those who have TB probably have HIV because of the high rates of co-infection. Uh, the fact that sometimes women would have to get isolated uh, from their families and their children, which makes it extremely difficult for them to be able to provide for the family, as they do in most cases. And so it becomes extremely difficult for them to be able to live normal lives. And sometimes we have seen situations where the spouses have abandoned them because of what they are facing with regards to having TB. I think in terms of seeking legal redress, the law is one option, but we need to try and see how else do we get communities to have more information around TB, around the fact that it's treatable, how do we have more campaigns around dealing with sensitization so that people are less carrying out stigmatizing behavior? How do we get such messaging to happen for people to understand that TB is a bacterial infection which can be treated 
and anyone can get it, so there's no need to be able to discriminate. So beyond litigation, there's a lot that needs to be done in terms of information giving at healthcare facilities, in public places, in community spaces. Uh, that needs to happen so that people have information and people are then able to uh, move from an informed perspective rather than a position of ignorance, which is what has been the case in a number of areas. We have a law to prevent discrimination against HIV patients. It has a redressal system for those who face discrimination at work, schools or other public places. Do you think countries need to have a similar law for TB? So I think my position is where a country has a good constitution that has got broad human rights covered, you don't need a disease-specific law because then you can rely on the constitution. Because whether it's a right to discrimination, whether it's a right to dignity, whether it's a right to information, whether it's right to housing, then that is specifically covered within the constitution and one would be able to rely on it. However, in countries where you do not have progressive constitutions or in countries where the constitutions do not have an expanded bill of rights, then it may make sense to have a disease-specific law or a broader health law that spells out what are the rights of those who are accessing treatment or are accessing the healthcare system, not just for treatment, but also from the prevention perspective. Now, the danger of having a disease-specific law is that you risk getting the good things and sometimes some bad things in the law. You risk having many bad things and few good things in the law. So it's a very delicate balance to try to go through a legislative process that sees legislators who have diverse interests and trying to be able to reach a particular consensus that leads you to having an extremely progressive law. So for me, my outright answer is that, no, you don't need a specific law where you have a good constitution, uh, but you do. You may need a specific law where the constitution is not strong and there are many violations that are happening of those who are affected by TB. I think what drives disease-to-disease laws depends on the toll of suffering people have faced to see the need of having a specific law. I think that's what drives the conversation to determine whether you need a specific law or not. depends on how active people are, how they have been involved in cases affecting them, and the need to have legislation in place. So I think for me, the reason why we had HIV laws is because people have faced untold stigma and there was a clear consensus of why you need to have a specific law or you need to have a law against discrimination. Now, we've seen a few of the TB cases coming out, but by the time the TB cases are coming out, a number of countries already have progressive constitutions, a number of countries already have progressive health acts, and so it then becomes slightly difficult to advocate for a specific TB law in the circumstances. So I would say what drives whether a country needs a law or not depends largely on how pressing the issue is for them to say, now we really need a TB law. And I think I mentioned this in a conversation I had with other colleagues at the conference, 
that people talked about the importance of social protection laws. But I said you can't do a specific social protection law for TB because social protection is needed for other diseases. It's needed for other circumstances because there are many poor people. There are many situations. And so you can't just say, I'll have a social protection law for TB people only. You then have to be able to expand it. And that is what seems to happen with the case of diseases now that it's not easy to have a disease-specific law because there are broader issues we are looking at and there are also issues of co-infection that you will not be able to easily address. I want to ask you about the privacy of patients. In India, doctors and chemists have to compulsorily notify TB patients in a software called Nikshai. The government also gives rupees 500 per month to TB patients in their bank account that is linked to the universal identity card in India called Aadhaar. India does not have a data protection law yet. What legal issues arise in such situations? So I foresee a situation where governments and donors operate more with data to help them plan, to help them cost, to help them know what kind of services they need to deliver to how many people. And uh, there are many ways they have learned to collect this data especially in ways that is anonymized and does not link to people. But of late, there has been a push to begin collecting data in a way that it could be linked to a particular individual. We have seen this in Kenya, when a number of donors and the Ministry of Health wanted to collect fingerprints of criminalized populations who are living with HIV. These are drug users, sex workers, men who have sex with men, and that, that entire community said no, because they said in the absence of data protection laws, in the absence of ways of safeguarding them if their details are made public to prosecutional agencies, they would not be willing to engage in such processes. And so that is one way in which I have seen this developed, uh, especially in a worrying manner. Now we have a process that is currently being litigated in court where the government, working with people such as MasterCard, sought to give every Kenyan a unique, not every Kenyan, but every person who was in Kenya a unique identification number, which they argued would be useful in providing better services to them, including healthcare services. Now, Kenya does not have a data protection law. We have a data protection bill, which is currently before the various parliamentary houses. We've already given our input around the weakness of some of that law, particularly the fact that it doesn't give you a proper remedy in case government does breach your right to privacy or that your data is sold to third parties without your knowledge. And so among many other things, a number of civil society have raised concerns about it. Now, the problem we foresee is that many countries in the global south have very few data protection laws and even where they have the data protection laws, the issue of enforcement and rolling out those particular laws remains a particular problem. So it's not seen as a priority as compared to carrying out police prosecution or other aspects. So this is something we need to keenly be able to follow and see what could be done in terms of ensuring that uh, this particular uh, data collection linking to people does not breach people's privacy because the moment it does, then it exposes people towards ridicule, towards human rights violations. And I would suggest you also look at the Singapore case, uh, which is a case relating to an American 
who worked for the government of Singapore and had access to a database of all people who are living with HIV. And he shared that database publicly after he had fallen out of the institution that he works with. So again, we need to be able to safeguard ourselves from that particular perspective of data protection, uh, laws being there in place, laws being enforced, and the patient having the right to access their data at any point of time. Apart from data protection, I'm also interested in understanding how we can carry out projects such as active case finding, where health workers go door to door trying to find patients who have TB symptoms. Doctors have to notify patients. Notifying the patients help understand the burden of the disease. How do we find more TB cases without invading the privacy of people? I think the measures, the measures we need are measures that create a healthcare system that is centered to the needs of the people who access the system. This means a healthcare system that provides information so that people don't first of all get sick with a TB or any other infectious disease. I'm trying to see the health system is not about only collecting data and treating people. It's about giving information to people to be able to make a decision. And that's a healthcare system we should be striving to have so that people then go there and feel empowered so that then your problem is not about someone not adhering to the medicine because the person has been given information and knows why it's important to adhere to that particular medicine. So that's where I'm coming from in terms of us really looking at how we deliver the health services in the context of HIV and especially in the context of TB, which seems to be more punitive in the way we roll things out. So thanks for this question. And I think, yes, there is recourse. And I think, and as demonstrated by a number of good cases that have taken place in India, both for HIV and TB, is to actually challenge the companies that have signed patents that keep the medicine away from those who are poor and those who are able to afford. So I think that is a critical point that we have to be able to take forward fast if we need to try and change the tide on this particular journey, is to ensure one, where companies are going to register their medicines or patents, we are aware, and if they need to file an opposition, we do so. Where policies that affect patents are going to be added, we then again try to address that. Uh, I think the brave patient you talked about eventually did pass away, which is regrettable, but it helps set a precedent around the agency to be able to take this forward. Now, we also equally have a similar case in Kenya where the patient passed away because the drug they needed bedaquiline was actually at the stores of the national government, but because he was at the district or county level, the bureaucracy did not allow the, for the, the medicine to get to him on time. So again, there are those structural issues that one would like to see and one would like to be able to address beyond just going to court around 
the one access to medicine issue. Then again, working with communities and advocates on access to medicine is pretty important so that they can help you know when to engage and how to pick up on certain issues relating uh, relating to access to medicine. this podcast on any of the podcast app of your choice like apple itunes google podcast castbox you can also listen to this episode on our website sunoindia.in suno india has a varied collection of podcasts on different topics ranging from climate change to current affairs to rare diseases do check out our website for more information